What is up, team? Welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined by my man, Brandon DeCruz, on a crispy new mic. What is going on, dude? Dude, my man. Um, Yeah, I'm over here trying to set up this mic, just so the audience knows, so I might be a little bit distracted. But uh, yeah, man, just had to uh, wanted to upgrade some of the mic equipment, so hopefully everyone else out there hears the difference in sound quality. And if not, <laughs> I need to continue working with things, but I do want to give a shout out to Steve Hall because he was the individual that had um, recommended the mic and the headphones that I'm using currently. And honestly, his sound is impeccable. Like every podcast he's on, it's, you know- That sounds great. You know, it's- top notch. So uh, I want to take a page out of his book, but like I was telling Jeremiah off air, he does have like a lot of soundboards. He has like a legit room for podcasting. So one day, you know what I mean? When uh, podcasting is is more of an entity of mine, uh, I'll definitely invest into it more and, and really devote time. But really everything's been well on my end. You know, um, it's funny right before we jumped on this conversation, I actually had to look at the last time we were on a podcast together, um, you know, prior to us jumping on zoom today, because you know, you and I touch base so many times a week, like multiple times a week, we speak with one another. So we, mm-hmm. you know, we catch up. However, I, you know, sometimes when we're not doing the weekly podcast, I don't know how long it's been since the last time we, you know, shared our weekly yeah. recaps or whatever. So I looked back and it was actually the coaching roundtable. So it's been about three weeks since we last released a podcast together. And within that time, just, you know, to give a little bit of a, a synopsis, um, I wrapped up my recovery diet phase. I had listened to the beginning of, you know, the coaching round table that we did with uh, our buddy, Jeff, and I was just in the last week of that. So I finished that and I've officially started a building phase. So I'm, I've transitioned myself into a slight surplus. And right now I'm aiming for between 250 and 300 calories per day of a surplus. Um, and really how I'm estimating that is based on a rate of gain of 0.25 per week, which, you know, is honestly, when we think about it, it's so minuscule. I'm an advanced training. I've been training for 17 years. So really what I'm looking at is I'm looking at tracking data and trends over time. So really what I'm going to be doing is looking over the course of a month. So yes, my rate of gain target or objective is 0.25, but I'll really be looking month to month that I'm hitting at least 1% of body weight gain per week. And then other than that, this, honestly, this has been an incredibly busy week, especially the last couple of days, um, especially on the coaching front, because I have one of my pro clients, uh, Arturo Turner. I want to give him a shout out. Uh, He's one of my IFBB pros and he's going to be competing in the last show of the season. And that is the IFBB battle of Texas, which is um, you know, actually next week. So in about a week and a half, it'll be the Olympia. So this was the last, you know, pro show that he could do prior to Olympia. And, um, this is going to be our third competitive season together. And, um, but you know, and it, I'm really excited for him because this is actually going to be his first open pro show because what ended up, you know, really what happened was he qualified or he turned pro in the master's division or the master's category of the IBB. So the last two seasons we've competed in the master's divisions. So they have, you know, both open and then masters, which is generally 35 or 40 and over. And so he's exclusively competed there and he's gotten top five and multiple shows that we've done within the masters category, but he really wanted to, you know, he's been really thinking about it. And he was like, listen, I really want to try my hand at going against the open class. And this is, I think there's like 30 guys deep. So it's going to be very competitive. It's the last show before the Olympia, but um, I'm excited for him. You know, this was um, a very productive off season for us. Um, we netted when I'm looking at his, obviously I'm tracking data over time. We've been working together for going on two years now, but as compared to last competitive season, so his last stage weight, which was on October of last year, he's up eight pounds of stage weight at this point. So we're, God damn. You know, 
Yeah. So he's put on some good tissue, man. And that's really been focusing on, you know, adding quality tissue, keeping him leaner in the off season, because there were off seasons that he would get a little bit out of control uh, in terms of, of eating and just, you know, accruing excess adipose tissue. And then we'd have to do a health phase, a primer phase and things of that sort. So really we kept them tighter, but we really focused on increasing, you know, as much lean body mass as possible, really keeping them healthy, keeping him within not striking distance by any means of competing, because obviously being in a competitive shape is, is not healthy, but this prep, we've only had to drop about 20 pounds. Whereas the first prep we ever did together, he dropped 45, which is a substantial amount. So, Pretty good, Sean. Yeah. yeah What's the know, stage weight? His stage weight's 217 pounds. As of this morning, he was 218 pounds. Um, so yeah, men's physique. So imagine okay. he's a big yeah, boy. Big guy. Okay. Yeah. So he's six, six, one, six, two, and 217 pounds. And last year he was approximately between 208 and 209 carved up. So um, I'm thinking he's going to be eight to 10 pounds, but really, you know, about two pounds of that will be glycogen replenishment um, as we've been carving him up. So this morning he was 218 pounds at the end of, um, you know, the lower um, carbohydrate phase of his um diet, he was at 217. So he's only up a pound. I expect another pound or so, and then we'll go from there, but I'm really excited for him. Want to uh, finish this, this season out on a high note. And then, um, you know, just onto, onto the next objective and goal, my friend, but how about you, man? Give me a, give me a recap. Yeah, dude. First, that's always cool when you have a client around long enough that you can go through multiple seasons like that. Like I think of a couple of clients I'm working with right now, where it's like, we've gone through the first building phase, like, one client in particular, we went through like a building phase, a fat loss phase for her wedding. And then she, we've gone through another building phase that she's just wrapping up. And then like, we're getting ready for her next fat loss phase. Cause she's like, has had two weddings. And this is over the course of like two and a half years, not married to two different people just, but just because of COVID, um, uh, she's had like two different wedding receptions. So it's been cool to like compare, Hey, peak building phase now versus peak building phase last year. Like even looking at body measurements, like, let's look at how much different, we are here where like one of her big priorities this time around has been like adding to her glutes. And it's cool to see like, okay, your midsection now versus when it was like peak point this time, last building phase where your strength levels are now versus then even like where that like hip measurement is like all that data. When you work with a client for the long term, is so cool to see. And it is really, that is such a fun part of the coaching process that I think is, I think is undervalued. And I think is lost when it's like, Hey, every three to six months, I bounce from coach to coach. Like you get better and better in your ability to coach someone over time right it's so much more like especially like once you've taken a client through a fat loss phase a building phase a maintenance phase a reverse diet like you can so much better to go through that entire process the next time around but it really takes it's a, it takes a while to really get in tune with that where it's it's so much harder with like just three months of working with someone or six months i can tell there's something you really want to say here but no, I, it's so much harder to get to that point in like a very short time frame Absolutely, man. I'm chomping at the bit because this is something that I speak with so many of my clients about, so many of my mentees, and then with so many other coaches that I respect within the space. And I often say, and I've told you this many times in the past, that I it's not that I don't care, but what someone does, what I can do with a client in 12 weeks, yes, I can get them results, but I'm really yeah. always looking further on in the future. And I always try when someone comes to me, I always make it very apparent to them. Yes, we're going to get results within the first 12 weeks, but that really isn't like, that is a checkpoint in, in the course of your journey and in the course of us working together, creating a relationship. And 
really, I find that not only do I get to know a client better, but my coaching style, my ability to be a chameleon and adapt to them and really help them to the best of my ability gets, you know, get better and better in time. And it's often the clients that I've had for a year plus that I get even expedited progress with as compared to what most people think. What I see with a lot of coaching, where I see with a lot of individuals who bounce from coach to coach. And one of my, my questions on a lot of the consultations I do is how many coaches have you worked with in the past? How long have you been with them? And what was your experience? And often I'll, I'll, I'll notice with certain individuals that they're not coaches themselves, but they're just really like fitness enthusiasts that they bounce around from coach to coach. I think I shared this with you previously, but in 2021, when I did my, you know, the end of 2021, when I did my um, statistics or my analytics, the average person that came to me for a consultation had worked with 5.6 coaches. So let's just round it up that six coaches in the past. And often it had only been for 12 or 24 weeks, you know, three or six months. And really that's not enough time. And I think what a lot of people make the mistake of when they go into coaching, they see it as a short-term investment, both into themselves and into the coach themselves. And what they do is they think that they're going to get all the knowledge that they needed, all the results that they wanted within those 12 weeks. And when they don't see that, they think that it's a non-worthwhile investment. So they pull out instead of really seeing what that coach can do for you. And I've really found that my greatest utility is being able to help advanced individuals, which really that you guys, I mean, think about it, Jeremiah, to be objective with you, you are one of the clients that's going to have the least amount of noticeable progress in terms of really where you are from your, the distance from your ceiling, from your, your genetic potential. However, I'm extremely confident the longer we work together, the more progress we'll make because I'll get right. better at responding to you, you know, auto-regulating things, being responsive. I mean, I remember when one of my IFBB pro clients, Anthony Scalza first came to me, you know, a buddy of mine had introduced us and had actually referred him. And it was another pro client of mine who was very competitive on the circuit at the time. And he said something to me, he said, listen, this guy's worked with a lot of high level coaches and I don't know how much you can help him, but I do know that the approach he's taking now will not allow him to have longevity in the sport. So this is where I'm really making the recommendation because I think you can keep him in this game longer. And not only have I done that from a health perspective, but I've you know, accrued a ton of tissue on Anthony throughout time. And it's really been through being extremely detail oriented, um, really paying you know attention to detail, really creating a relationship. I mean, this is someone that has flown out with me around the country because we've created such a close friendship. Or even someone like yourself, where I talk to you, you know, on an every other day or everyday basis. And it's really about coaching. Isn't just about the knowledge that you have or what you can apply in twelve weeks. It's really about that relationship that you create, how you get to know a client, how you can respond to them, and how you can help them. Not only through that twelve week transformation, not only through that twelve week fat loss phase, but help them be the best version of themselves, both in their high points in life and their low points. Because often a lot of people will disengage from coaching. They'll, they won't work with a coach when things in life are getting tough. And honestly, oftentimes when a client will tell me, listen, you know, I'm going to be really busy over the next couple of months. I'm going to be traveling. I don't know if I can focus on my physicals. I often, you know, tell them, and you know, there's no pressure here. However, I often remind them that one of the greatest roles that I have is in terms of accountability and problem solving. So really right. when you're going through life's trials and tribulations, it's probably when you can benefit from a coach the most, even just oh, yeah. having someone to guide you, to be objective with you, to be a supportive role in your corner and to really help you navigate the difficulties that come along with life, stress, work, relationships, things of that sort. This is where someone objective can look at things and say, listen, this is what we need to do. Or, you know, this is how we have to modify things. This is the best option for what your goals are. And let's look at, you know, not only going for what's optimal, you know, I have a, a client today that checked in and she had to work 
six shifts in a row that were 12 hours. She works overnight as a registered nurse. And she was like, listen, I, you know, I had reached out to you earlier this week and we spoke about it. I told her, don't train. You know I mean? You're going to be doing 12s after 12s. Your sleep is completely dysregulated. You just got on a night shift. So your body, your circadian rhythm is not in alignment. You're in misalignment. So I really just want you to focus on your steps, low intensity activity, rest, getting as much sleep as possible, really trying to acclimate yourself to this stressful period because your body's in a complete disarray. And so she made a comment to me today that she felt that this wasn't the most optimal week for her. And I reminded her, listen, it's not about what's optimal in on paper. It's about what's meeting between what's optimal and what's practical. And right now, the best thing we could do was to deload you, take a step back and take some time to just acclimate yourself because going through your first week of being, you know, six shifts of 12 hours, and this is only a very short period. She will be on night shift. However, this was just, you know, she's doing training essentially. So she's in an accelerated program where she had to put extra hours in this week. However, these type of time periods aren't a time to push in the gym when you're pushing so hard in life. However, she did admit that had I not been in her corner, had she not had a coach, she would have just tried to train through it. And she felt terrible as it was you know, just going through this without training. So imagine the stress, the allostatic load that would have been increased had she been training on top of that. It would have just been, you know, she would have been digging even a deeper hole. Yeah, absolutely. And that's such a great point where I think that the all or nothing thinking is kind of a, something that I see a lot where it's understanding, Hey, like a lot of times during, I see it's either people try to push through it to the extent that it's detrimental or it is, well, I can't nail it this weekend to be extremely busy. So fuck it. Right. Like everything's I'm off the wagon entirely. Right. And how I think that's one of the times, as you said, like where coaches can help the most, very similar with like the holidays, right. Where I know this is a conversation we've had a ton as of late. Like if it is three weeks of you just maintaining, like where in our work together, we're not going to have this. We're not going to say like, Hey, you have to nail your macros perfectly. No deviations from your meal plan. Like you're not going to eat Christmas food or anything like that. Of course, we're not going to say that we're going to work through like, Hey, how do you want to approach this? What approach aligns best with that? And again, not like, how can we be perfect, but how can we do good enough to maintain during this time? Right. And if it's at the end of the year, you've strung together 40 weeks where you were pretty spot on in 12 weeks where you did just enough to maintain, that's a year of great progress. Right. But people swing so hard between I'm either perfect or I'm off entirely. And that's really when, where people make very little progress. Um, and then again, like the, the time expectation is an interesting one where a lot of people seem to be very attached to three months specifically for whatever reason. I'm not sure what that, why that is. I think there are like so many 12 week transformations out there, but that's like, it's interesting. Like something I see a lot at least is oftentimes individuals who will like give up at the three month mark. It's not that they're not making progress. Like a lot of times it'll be like, Hey, if you did what you did in this last three months and another three months, you will have gotten so far, but this, like they're comparing themselves to someone who's like, okay, this person achieved this in a year. And I'm frustrated that I'm not there in three months, but it's like, Hey, if you repeated what you did this three months for the next nine months, you would surpass that person. But I think it's, there's a lot of interesting, I don't know if it's just like all the marketing within the coaching space or what, but there does seem to be like a lot of, uh, unrealistic expectations around like the time that it takes as well to kind of speak back to this. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I really think it's, we're, we're bombarded as a society, whether it be from social media or it be uh, from, you know, the news media, we see all these dramatic transformations. And a lot of times what we don't realize 
is that there isn't transparency and clarity between those messages or behind those messages. So you see your favorite influencer, you don't realize that they've been training 10, 15, 20 years. You see a dramatic transformation of someone that used to be a competitor and who got shredded in the course of 12 weeks, not knowing that they had the skill of dieting for 10 years before. My favorite example is where I see fitness professionals that will promote the concept of intuitive eating. However, Intuitive eating, if you've been tracking macros and and tracking calories on MyFitnessPal or through Chronometer for 10 years prior is a much different uh, activity, is a much different skill than telling one of your clients who has very little nutritional literacy, hasn't created fundamental habits around nutrition and around proper nutrient timing, proper uh, micronutrient intake, food selection, all these things telling them, yes, you can intuitive eat. These are two, you know, extremes of the spectrum. So I really think that, you know, I really try to be deliberate when I speak and I think that words have meaning. And so, you know, I always try to put context behind my answers, whether it be on a podcast or especially with my clients, I'm I'm so, you know, individualized in terms of my responses to them. But sometimes they'll ask me questions like, what are your thoughts on a, what are your thoughts on this, this, uh, approach? You know, uh, today we're going to talk about carnivore. That's, uh, you know, a question that I got or, on these, on these different, you know, the ketogenic diet or these different fad diets within this industry. And it's like, what you're seeing is you are seeing, um, a biased a, or a, a biased, um, representation of this. This is survivorship bias. You are seeing the best of the best, the 1% of people on social media that were responsive to this, that had a really good, uh, response to it, that they had a ton of benefits, but often we forget that there are so many people that try these approaches and see nothing, but, you know, with the lack of results often comes, you know, discouragement, embarrassment, things of that sort. So often when someone tries something and it didn't work for them whatsoever, they don't share that. They don't say, Hey, listen, I tried this in 12 weeks. I had unrealistic expectations. I take onus for this. However, I didn't get the results I want because I didn't give myself enough time. No one shares those. No one with a big following shares those type of experiences. So it's almost like they're completely swept under the rug and as though they don't exist, but that's what the average person experiences. So it's, it's always really, um, I think it's very vital. It's extremely important as a coach to be realistic. And when I do a consultation, I do a needs analysis with a client and sometimes they're giving me these timelines and I'll say, listen, what you want isn't realistic. A, with where you're at, B, with some of the bottlenecks within your lifestyle and see some of the hurdles and obstacles we need to overcome. So this is what I'm going to give you as a projected timeline. This is an estimation. However, realize that in life, we're going to have setbacks. We're going to have obstacles. We're going to have, you know, um, emergencies that could slow down your rate of progress. So this is an estimation. This isn't like a set and forget, you know, timeline where you're definitely going to be at your goal by this time. And that's why often I don't take people directly into fat loss phases because they're not ready for it, both physically and mentally. And the last thing that I want to do is have someone feel as though they failed. But if I was to allow them, if I just took them at their word and I just did what every single client came to me wanting to do, every person that wanted to diet, I put them into a deficit. If I did that with every person, I would have a lot of people that would feel, you know, discouraged by the results or the lack thereof that they got because they weren't prepared. So as a coach, we need to set people up for success and be extremely objective and honest with them, especially with where they're at currently and then where they want to be and what that timeline is going to look like. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even speaking of the timeline, that's one of the biggest shifts that we've made, even in like the last six months to be transparent is uh, my approach used to always be like, Hey, when you start, I want you to very clearly be able to see the path ahead. So I'm going to lay out like my projected timeline, right? This is when we're going to be in fat loss. This is when we're building. This is how long it's going to take by my estimation. But even then people, 
it started to get to be where I was like realizing, and I know we've talked about this, like I, and I was going to be transparent about this. This is like something I've changed my mind on just recently. And even in our work together, it's really helped me to like, be like, I think this is like getting to be more detrimental than helpful where it's like this, it's kind of arbitrary. Like I said, we'd probably be around this point in fat loss. We would end at this week, but because I had this timeline for the client, now they feel like they're failing because mm-hmm. they didn't hit this exactly. And it's like, it's completely arbitrary, but just because I have this laid out in a sheet, now they feel like this, right? And I can't perfectly predict that. I can't predict like how long we're going to need in a private to be in a primary phase before we enter fat loss. But that's that's been kind of a development for us as well, where more and more it's been like, I don't think this is serving us like I originally thought it was. No, and I, I went through that in my own coaching business uh, years ago, where I used to be. I'm very analytical, especially with numbers, and and I actually try to detach myself from that as a coach because I never want to put external pressure on a client by the way that I operate best. So the analytical tracking and things of that sort—that's what serves me best. But that doesn't mean that it serves the individual client. So, you know, many a times I have multiple client check-in forms and it will go the the client check-in form that I will utilize with a specific client is based on that individual based on their psychological profile based on their needs their wants also like how they operate best like are they good at tracking data are they someone that just wants to you know give me a paragraph about their week and just talk about things it's really going to be based on the individual but when I did have more of a structured um I, I want to almost say regimented type of approach and I would say, hey, we're going to, I would, you know, do the full phase periodization and I would show them in advance. I really realized that with certain individuals, it gave them really good incentive. It really kept them motivated, kept them on the straight and narrow path, but with a lot of others, and it was the vast majority. And this is why I changed my way on that. It had them clinging onto that. And when, if, if, and when they didn't see that that was going to fruition, it really made them feel discouraged, made them feel like they failed, um, made them, you know, almost you know, um, really get down on themselves. And that only compounded the effects of not seeing the results that they wanted. And so with that, I started looking at things and saying, listen, what is a 12 week fat loss phase? Like, is that set in stone? Is that industry standard? Yes. However, is that what the physiological response of every single individual that I, that I put in an energy deficit is going to need? No, it's context specific based on that person's dieting history, based on their starting level of body composition, their goal, so many things, the context of their lifestyle, their career, their responsibilities, you know, their stress levels, their sleep, all these things. So I'm not going to set this. I will give them a range. However, I'm always going to build buffer room in that. And often I'll overestimate the amount of time so that I have those extra weeks, just in case something in life comes up, just like, you know, as coaches, we have a ton of experience and I'll often share my experience with a client and say, listen, I've had, you know, I've worked with a thousand plus people, but remember they're all you know, I see people from all ends of the spectrum. So for some people with a primer phase, eight weeks, and they're good to go into their next phase. Some people, 12 weeks. I've had people that I've had to stay in a primer phase for 16 weeks just to see tangible results. And it wasn't because the program didn't work for them. It was just because a lot of times they couldn't integrate all the the steps of the process into their lifestyle. So we did it one step at a time. So yes, it was probably the same amount of work that that person did in eight weeks and got it accomplished, but we just extrapolated out a little bit further and really fit it for that individual. And there's nothing wrong with going slower. We still got to the end destination and we got to their goal. However, it was more specific and it was more tailored to that person's lifestyle, the constraints of their lifestyle and what they could do, their capabilities at that time. And we got better over time. And so I really don't like, you know, 
we often see, you know, every person advertising an eight week transformation or a 12 week transformation. I try to be really transparent. Sometimes I do have 12 week transformations, but often it's like this fat loss phase took 16 weeks or you're seeing a transformation that took me six months. I put them through a three month primer phase and then a three month fat loss phase. These are the results. Realize that these are incredible results, but it took them six months. However, six months of doing something properly, really investing yourself is so much better than doing these same things you've been doing for 12 weeks over and over again in this repetitive cycle where you end up just where you started 12 weeks later, because that's often what people are doing. They're doing the same thing and expecting a different result. And really, if you want to make a change, if you are not seeing the results that you want and you continue doing what you've been doing, whether it be the positive things or the negative things you've been doing, you're going to see these same results that you've been getting. And if you're unhappy with that, you need to be open to open-minded to making a change and trying a different approach. Oh, absolutely. I think it's just short-term gratification or instant gratification versus like sacrificing that for the long-term, right? Where I think for most people, especially just the thought of being in a diet gives short-term gratification where if it's like, okay, I'm going to take my diet seriously this time and restarting, you see yourself drop a couple of pounds that week. And that gives you kind of like that dopamine hit. And that might be the same, like you've relived that week over and over for years, right? Whereas it might be like, hey, maybe we need to take some time away from the diet. And that's going to be like maybe six months away from the diet before we get back to it. But a year from now, you're going to be in a much better place. It's just so much harder to say like, okay, I'm going to sacrifice that. And it might be a year until I'm where I want to be versus like this time the diets can be different versus the last 50 times, right? Where it's, hey, we know you do the same shit over and over and you're going to be in the same place in a year, but it's hard to kind of put that off. Um, Anyways, man. We better get into it because I know you only have about 30 minutes here and we got a couple questions that I think have been sitting on, sitting here for a while. I know <laughs> these have. So we apologize to everyone whose questions we've been so slow getting to. First one I have for you is what are your thoughts on chrononutrition when it comes to meal timing? Right. So this is a, a pretty in-depth topic. And um, I don't think I've covered this on any other podcast. So I was glad to get this question. This person had a couple other specific questions, but I kind of just wrapped it up into that. But when it really comes down to the hierarchy of importance for nutrition, we have to realize and remember that our total calorie intake, our diet quality, and our micronutrient intake are the three components I find to be the most important. But I do believe like the concepts of nutrient timing and meal timing are areas that can provide additional benefits once someone has their calories, their macros, and their micros dialed in. So this is like the cherry on top. And now when it comes to chrononutrition in and of itself, this is the concept of aligning our nutrition or our eating patterns and our meal timing with our circadian biology. So instead of talking about nutrient timing, which is something, um, Jeremiah, you and I have done a full series on. So if anyone wants to refer back to that, I think we did a three-part series on the concept of nutrient yeah. timing. We have like especially five hours around, on it. Yeah, especially around the peri-workout window. So I really won't cover that, but I'll talk about meal timing in generality, essentially. But when we look at the area of chrononutrition, there's a large body of evidence and literature that shows benefits from aligning essentially our calorie intake or our energy intake with our circadian rhythms. And most of the research finds that if you front load the majority of your calories during earlier parts of the day, like when it's light out, it's more beneficial from an energy expenditure perspective, because we see that meals eaten earlier in the day have a higher thermic effect of feeding than compare, you know, if you ate the same meal earlier in the day, you're going to have a higher thermic effect of feeding than if you ate that same meal later at night. And then we also see like from a metabolic health perspective that we have better glycemic control when eating more of our carbs earlier in the day as compared to at night as insulin sensitivity is something that works on the diurnal rhythm. So it tends to be higher in the early parts of the day. And then as we get later into the evening, it goes down. So we see uh, a 
like a lowered insulin response or insulin sensitivity. And there's also something called the second meal effect. And this refers to the fact that when we consume either a high protein or a high protein and high carb meal um, in the morning, our glucose response to lunch is better. And we have improved blood sugar control in response to that meal as compared if we were to fast in the morning. So they actually have done trials where they look at literally the same type of meals. And what they'll do is they'll take the meal and they'll have someone come into the lab and do it in a, a morning setting. So within a few hours of waking and keep in mind, guys, like when we talk about breakfast in and of itself, that doesn't mean like immediately upon waking, this is like within a few hours of waking. So your first meal earlier, earlier in the day, and then they'll look at the person's response to their second meal. However, when they have someone skip that first meal, they give them the same second meal. So the same um, you know, macronutrient and calorie composition of that second meal, they have worse glycemic responses. So really what we see is by eating something earlier in the day, starting our day with a nutrient dense, you know, especially a protein bolus, you're going to have better insulin sensitivity, not only during that first meal, because we have higher insulin sensitivity, but also in uh, subsequent meals after. So basically our muscles are better able to absorb and store glucose without needing as much insulin as they usually would. Had we not eaten earlier in the day. And then when it really comes down to it, this is actually really interesting because chrononutrition, I don't know if anyone realizes, um, you know, Jeremiah, I'm sure you can attest to this. Like we never heard about this a few years ago. Like this literally, it's uh -huh. been the last couple of years that we've been hearing about this. And what's interesting is I think this comes down to the fact that, you know, in 2017, they, uh, there was three researchers. I looked this into this a long time ago, but I, I had some clients that were working night shifts. So I got really into circadian rhythms and, and circadian misalignment and things of that sort. And there was three Nobel prize winners that won a Nobel prize for circadian rhythms and really looking at that in 2017. And since then the area has exploded. So we've had so much research come out on the topics of breakfast, on the topics of meal timing, on the topics of circadian rhythms, and then specifically on chrononutrition. And really, I think the most compelling benefits that we've seen since then in the literature are the metabolic and energy expenditure benefits we see from not skipping breakfast. And by breakfast, like I mentioned before, I don't mean like the typical breakfast of breakfast foods consumed immediately upon waking. We're just talking about having, you know, a solid meal that, you know, preferably has a solid bolus of protein and potentially some carbs within a few hours of waking to essentially break your fast, because really we have to think about it from like a catabolic and a anabolic, um, physiology perspective. So when we're sleeping, we're in a catabolic state. We don't have nutrients being ingested. However, the morning is a prime opportunity to stimulate muscle protein synthesis and get yourself out of that catabolic state of, of fasting and get you into a fed state. And there's actually, you know, a pretty good amount of data that looks at the benefit to eating breakfast regularly. So like when we look at observational research, if you were ever look into this, you'll see that there is a lot of research that shows that those who our regular breakfast consumers have lower body fat percentages, lower BMIs, and are less likely to be overweight. So that's what we see in observational research on large populations. But then we also have randomized control trials that look at the act of eating breakfast as compared to not eating breakfast. So I think the best studies on this, there was a researcher, I want to say his name is James Betts. And uh, I know it's called the Beth, the Bath Breakfast Project. And essentially what they did was they did a series of studies um, where they compared groups that ate breakfast and then those that didn't eat breakfast. And they wanted to look at how it, it affected their energy balance, their glycemic control, and a couple other markers. And essentially what they did throughout 
like a series of studies. They did it both on lean individuals, so people that were healthy, and then they also did it on obese individuals that had insulin resistance. So they wanted to see in different populations, how does having breakfast consistently affect someone's energy balance, their energy expenditure, their physical activity levels, and their glycemic control? Because these are all things that can improve body composition, but also metabolic health. So what they did in this series of studies was they gave the breakfast group a 700 calorie breakfast, whereas the breakfast skipping group would just simply wait to eat until lunchtime. So breakfast group, their directions were essentially before 11 a.m., we want you to eat a 700 calorie breakfast. What's interesting is despite the fact that the breakfast group consumed more total calories throughout the course of the day because of that large breakfast, then as compared to the breakfast skipping group, there were no differences between groups in terms of body composition outcomes. So despite eating more calories, they didn't gain adipose tissue. They didn't gain you know weight in comparison to the breakfast skipping group. However, when we do look at what differences there were, they did see that those in the breakfast skipping group had worse glycemic control and blood glucose response to their lunch and dinner meals as compared to the breakfast group. So this is just more like clinical evidence as to the second meal effect. Now, when they looked at these, these research studies further, because they did multiple of them, they saw that the reason that there wasn't a difference in body composition between groups in terms of, hey, you know, if someone's eating more calories per day than usual, they should be gaining weight. But what they saw was that the breakfast group increased their levels of physical activity across the whole day, especially in the morning. So the average increase in physical activity uh, actually increased their total daily energy expenditure by around, I think it was over 440 calories in the breakfast skipping group or the breakfast eating group as compared to the breakfast skipping group. So depending on how you look at it, you know, eating breath breakfast can either increase your level of need and your physical activity levels, or skipping breakfast can actually lower your NEAT levels because of the fact that you are not ingesting calories, not getting energy in the system, and you're less likely to do spontaneous activity, be active and things of that sort. So really when we look at it, it's, there are some, I mean, there's research and there's also some benefits to kind of biasing more of your calories earlier in the day because that insulin sensitivity benefits. But I think there's another caveat to this that we have to take into consideration because often when I hear people speak on chrononutrition, it's like this set and forget principle, like eat all your calories early in the day, you know, fast. Yeah. That's not realistic for many people. And we really have to look at the fact that what are the people that we are working with? What are their goals? So for me, I work with a lot of people that are looking to improve their metabolic health. So I will, in my own practice, within my own coaching, I will partition and bias a lot more of their calories earlier in the day, especially their carbohydrates when they're most insulin sensitive. However, we have to look at the fact that with active populations, with, you know, when I work with bodybuilders or hobby builders or recreational trainees, people that are active, there's a lot of benefits that resistance training does beyond the muscle mass effect. So obviously, yeah, resistance training increases our muscle mass, which is the biggest sink for glucose in the body. So that's going to increase insulin sensitivity in and of itself, but also the active muscular contractions, just taking your muscle and, and working out or going through movement, uh, contracting skeletal muscle in the gym is going to increase glute four translocation independent of insulin. So this independently ins increases insulin sensitivity and glucose uptake. So in the hours around training, you are more insulin sensitive. So this is where we can utilize this approach in both manners. We don't have to utilize one extreme or the other. We don't have to say, Hey, avoid all calories at night and only eat your calories early in the day. We can do this. We can bias more of our calories around training for those that are resistance training. And then also if we're going to add in additional calories, say we're going to really take in a high carbohydrate meal, maybe bias that more towards the morning or more towards the earlier part of the day when it's light out and try to avoid really heavy meals before bed because we have worse insulin sensitivity at night, worse glycemic control. We actually have worse ability to um, 
dispose of lipids as well. So high fat meals. And then also we have to think about the fact that what else downregulates other processes, physiological processes in the body, such as recovery, muscle mass, insulin sensitivity, sleep. So if you're eating like these huge meals, and this is really where I remember, you know, years ago, uh, Morgan Birkin, I don't know if you're familiar with him. Do you remember? Oh, the yeah, Lean Lean Gains Gains. Protocol? oh yeah. You know, that was an intermittent fasting protocol. And what I, I used to have a lot of clients come to me in the early, like 2010s that were utilizing that, but they were like saving all their time, all their calories in the day for at night. And, you know, they're calorie controlled. These are guys that are tracking their calories. Don't get me wrong, but often it was leading to worse sleep quality. I would see uh, glycemic dysregulation in the morning. They would have higher blood glucose, things of that sort. But also we have to think about it from the perspective of a lot of people when we have to think about the habits, the behaviors and things around that. And really when I'm working with clients, I'm looking at, you know, evenly spreading out the distribution of their calories in a way that's going to most benefit their adherence. So around training, really easy to adhere to in the morning when someone has going to have a lot of activity, let's increase calories so that they can have great energy levels. They can have hunger suppression. They can have, you know, you know, cognition, all these things. However, what I've really noticed with those that really back in their calories, like they do, um, John Kiefer used to have like this carb backloading. I don't know if you remember that. I I was going to ask who the carb backloading guy was. Yeah. John Kiefer. So he had that and he misextrapolated all the research that he utilized literally had not one reference that was correct when I looked into it years ago. <laughs> However, I tried it myself. However, let's think about it from like a, a logical perspective. No one binge eats at eight o'clock in the morning. People right. binge eat at night. And here's the thing. We see that when people eat late at night and they, they're saving all their calories, they're more likely to they kind of go off the handlebars. So it's really like, was it that you ate at night? That was the only reason? No, it's because you saved all your calories. You restricted yourself all day long. You didn't properly fuel yourself throughout the course of the day. So yes, you enter the night super hungry. And we have to remember that our hunger patterns, so your ghrelin levels are entrained to the times at which you eat. So if you're waiting and you're staying without eating most of the course of the day, you're eating small meals. And then every night you've essentially trained yourself to expect this really large meal. You're going to think that you're someone that needs to eat at night, that you're really hungry at night. No, you've trained your body, but you can easily, just like when people do, you know, intermittent fasting, they get used to that eight hour, 10 hour window, whatever, you know, hour, you know, um, period that they're utilizing, they get used to that and they're no longer as hungry or they're not noticeably hungry during the times that they're fasting, despite the fact that they used to eat for 16 hours a day. And now they only eat for eight. We can train that. So really my whole approach to this is let's, you know, customize it for the individual. But if I have someone that's suffering from insulin resistance or is erring on that pre-diabetic, you know, population, you know, there was just a research study that was uh, released in July of 2022. And I actually just reviewed it on my show. Um, that will come out this week. And it was 63.1% to 66% of Americans are pre-diabetic or erring on the the verge of type 2 diabetes. So that's the vast majority of our population. And out of the entire American population that they looked at through the NHANES data set, which is a really, it's a large population-based data set within the US, only 6.8% of Americans had optimal metabolic health. And that's actually lowered from the last meta-analysis that was done on this a few years ago. So we're you know, metabolic health is steadily declining. So if this is something where you can take the same calories you're eating and just kind of shift them to optimize your nutrient timing, your meal timing to a way that's going to benefit you and really optimize your physiology, your metabolic health, and potentially your body composition because of that increase in energy expenditure and calories burned per day, this is an easy, you know, uh, switch that we can make and really try to make improvements without trying to chronically restrict calories or really setting like these really overarching goals, like don't eat this or, you know, cut this out. It's literally like, all right, I'm going to bias instead of having a really big meal at night. Let me have a smaller meal. It's going to improve my, my sleep. And let me bias more of my larger meals towards around trading. And then in the morning or during the earlier part of the day. 
Okay. Absolutely. I think that's a very thorough breakdown. I don't have a lot to add to that. Um, essentially, yeah, it sounds like, Hey, if we're resistance training, we can probably, we're safe to, we're going to buy us more calories around that. And as you said, it's not going to be the biggest rock, but again, for best metabolic health, probably biasing more of our calories around training or in the earlier part of the day is going to be a good rule of thumb. The conversation around carb, carb backloading as well, I was cracked me up. I had a client must have been 2017, one of my in-person clients. I remember he was big on car backloading, but I just was so hard to get this dude to track his calories consistently or anything of that nature, but he still wanted to do the backloads. And it was just, it was an interesting experiment for sure. But um, getting to the next question we have, which is thoughts on the carnivore diet. Do you think that a diet low in fiber could have negative effects? Um, Man, purse, go ahead. No, so I was going to say, I just want to make a caveat. This is actually two questions and they were similar with one another. So I, I combined them together, but go right okay, ahead. Okay, gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. No, um, I'm personally not going to be a huge fan of the carnivore diet. For most people, like first and foremost, I just don't think like just big rocks, sustainability. I don't think it's going to be realistic for most people in the long term. Very similar to like, I see it as something very similar to keto where it's for a lot of people, not that it's bad per se. But for a lot of people, it's just not going to be. And I was that the diet I would choose for like performance building muscle. No, but for a lot of people, it's just not going to be something you can keep up um, long term as part of your lifestyle. There's going to be so many things that don't fit within like this carnivore um, realm. It's just probably not going to work out well. Then alongside that, I think that a lot of people are going to miss out on many of their micronutrient needs um, because within like a diet like that, you would have to be very intentional with your supplementation to make sure that we are getting in the rest of the micronutrients we need for the most healthy, responsive body, right? A healthy body is a responsive body. I'm pretty sure I'm the one that came up with that. Um, I'm just like, I can't jack that tagline. Of course that's yours. But, um, within that, yeah, not something that I am going to recommend to anyone. I think as well, like from you and just from a digestion perspective, a lot of the foods that are going to be more nutrient dense are going to be, um, more fibrous as well. So very similarly, like I don't think a diet that's going to be extremely low in fiber is going to be great for health. I have heard like, uh, I don't know if it's necessarily low fiber, but like low, I've heard actually Kasim from N1 talk about this a bit, like his diet structure, I believe is mostly, mostly just fruit. And I don't think he does like a lot of vegetables as a whole. I of course don't want to put words in his mouth. I know on like Aaron and Brian, Aaron Straker and Brian Borstein's podcast, I've heard him talk a bit about that, but Personally, I think for most, especially like, as I don't think most people are going to be that like, okay, like I'm tracking everything in chronometer. I'm looking at how am I nailing my micronutrient needs? I think for most people, like just a more balanced diet where we're prioritizing fruits, veggies, things of that nature is as a whole going to be a much better approach. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, just on the Kasim thing, I'm, I'm not sure about his diet, but if he is taking in a substantial amount of fruit within his diet, he's getting the micronutrients, he is getting fiber. So if we look at a food source like raspberries, it's one of the highest fiber containing food sources per gram. So even if he was to utilize like that in place of servings of veggies, he's probably getting a sufficient amount of fiber where he's getting a, you know, a dose where it's mod, you know, it's helping with his gut bacteria. It's helping with short chain fatty acid, um, you know, break, uh, 
composition and things of that sort. So he's probably getting the full benefits. He might just have, and I think maybe what you're referring to, I, I'm, you know, I'm not, you know, uh, pulling because I don't know, but maybe he has a FODMAP intolerance, which a lot of people, they do have to use more of an elimination of uh, vegetable sources due to the fermentable carbohydrates within vegetables that do cause some GI irritation. Anyone with IBS would have to do this uh, for either a short period of time, or some people have to do it more long-term. Um, anyone with IBD, so irritable bowel disorder, something like Crohn's or colitis. Uh, I've had several clients that have had that, and they've had to take vegetables out of their diet, except for low FODMAP um, alternatives. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want, I definitely don't want to put words in his mouth either, but I was trying to think of like something that's like a more realistic approach. And I know I've heard him speak on, like, I think if I'm correct, I think that's kind of how he eats. Where, as you said, I'm not sure if even for him, it was like a matter of digestion or any of these foods specifically gave him issues. But as you said, like, like a lot of cruciferous veggies, for example, will give some people, some individuals issues, right? Where it is like, Hey, we can't be more specific and still get in like fruits and things that are going to be easier to end your digestion that are still going to be more nutrient dense. But yeah, like when we're going to bring it back into like an actual carnivore diet, um, like that in itself or extremely low fiber diet isn't something to recommend, but go on. Sorry. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think before I jump into my answer, I just want to give a little bit of a definition of what a carnivore, uh, carnivore diet is essentially, because it's honestly something that, you know, it's only kind of come into popularity or prominence within the last like, maybe three or five years. If that it's been something very just within the nutrition space the last few years. So there may be listeners on the show that are unfamiliar with it, but essentially a carnivore diet is an animal based diet, which is generally very low in carbohydrates due to the fact that the only food sources that are usually eaten on the diet itself are coming from either meat or egg sources. And there are, you know, there are a few different approaches. So if you were to see on social media, some people have a little bit of additional um, add-ons to that carnivore diet, but the base template is essentially, you know, an all muscle meat diet or a nose to tail diet where they will consume organs like liver and heart, which is why we have someone like the liver King, which, uh, you know, apparently was eating uh, tons of liver, but obviously was not. But, um, that's another story for another day. But besides like the meat and animal products, they exclude all other food sources, such as vegetables, fruits, whole grains, you know, starches, things of that sort. So it's very limiting. So like Jeremiah was pointing to the ability to adhere to this is not something I could see many people being able to sustain over the long term or even for a short term. I mean, that's pretty, pretty drastic of a nutritional composition change. And when it comes to like my thoughts on this type of diet, I'm all for eating an omnivorous diet that includes, you know, quality sources of animal protein. But I think we have to realize that there's a big difference between a well-balanced meat inclusive diet and a carnivore diet, which is meat only. And the issue with this type of diet, like Jeremiah was alluding to, is there's several nutrient deficiencies that come from a diet solely constructed or solely composed of animal sources. And I'm not sure if you have had clients come to you, but I've had, you know, several clients come to me with you know, coming from a carnivore background where they've utilized this approach for three, six, nine months. And often I found that these individuals tend to be generally deficient in things like vitamin C, calcium, electrolytes, especially magnesium and potassium, which are highly deficient in most of the population. But these were even to a degree when I ran their, their numbers or their diet in chronometer, it was like a very, very low, a very insufficient amount of, especially magnesium and, and potassium. And the thing is like, these are two electrolytes that are necessary for so many processes within the body. And really what we see is when people take a very low carbohydrate approach, and the reason that I'm, I'm specifically, you know, targeting this low carbohydrate approach, so this could actually uh, apply to keto is because most of the micronutrient dense food sources that we have are in the form of a carbohydrate, whether that be a vegetable, whether that be a whole grain, whether that be a fruit source or a starch, they're going to be higher in these 
micronutrients that include vitamins and, and minerals. And so when someone goes on one of these, you know, meat only diets, that's very low in carbohydrates, the diet itself doesn't provide you know, a sufficient amount of electrolytes and minerals through their food sources. So they're not only going to have a, like a micronutrient deficiency, but they're also going to have an electrolyte deficiency, which is going to be compounded by the fact that they don't, they're not eating carbs. So they won't be able to hold on to the electrolytes that they do consume or supplement. And this is why, you know, I'm, I'm unsure if anyone, you know, I'm sure that many are familiar with people talking about keto flu, like the feeling that they had the first few weeks on keto. And really the reason that people experience keto flu is that when insulin levels are low, so when you're in a very low carbohydrate diet and your insulin levels get low, um, what ends up happening is it causes the kidneys to excrete more electrolytes, which can impact not only how you feel, but your performance, your recovery, and your general health. And then also will be what I do see with these individuals. And this is something that if you look at um, like Carnivore MD, he's done his lab work or Sean Baker, they've put up their lab work like publicly where you can look at it. And what a lot of people don't realize is, is the relationship between nutrition and sex hormones. So insulin and sex hormone bond, binding globulin have an inverse relationship. So when insulin levels are really low, like in the case of a very low carbohydrate, Car uh, carbohydrate diet, it's going to increase sex hormone binding globulin, which is going to lower your free testosterone levels. So if you actually look at the blood work of a lot of these guys, they look like they're hypogonadal. And so they're, you know, maybe they're not suffering. They're the genetic outliers, but there's many people that have come to me in this situation where they're utilizing the structure of a carnivore diet and they're having deleterious effects, not only to body composition, sometimes their body composition is fine, but a lot of times to their health or how they feel. And then we have to look at the other components of a meat-based diet, because what is that going to include or, or what other nutrients within that diet? Yes, they're going to have protein, but they're also going to have a very high intake of saturated fat, which we see can dramatically increase your LDL levels, which is independently linked to an increased risk of uh, cardiovascular disease. And what's really interesting is we have a lot of like um, nutritional uh, debates on the different fats. So saturated fat versus polyunsaturated fats. We have this big thing about seed oils right now in this industry, but really when we look at independently randomized controls trials that put subjects into a surplus using either saturated fats or polyunsaturated fats, they found that when you overfeed on saturated fat, it leads to more fat gain in general. So more fat gain in total, greater increases in visceral adiposity, which is independently linked to, um, increases in insulin resistance, and they also have more liver fat disposition as compared to overfeeding on polyunsaturated fats. So we have to realize that if you're having a meat-inclusive diet, you're going way beyond the, the general recommended um, amount of saturated in the fat in the diet, which is 10% or less. And so we see this in independent trials, but also you're going to see this reflective on blood work where a lot of these individuals that are following carnivore diets have extremely high LDL levels, which like I said, is an independent, you know, causal link or it's independently linked to an increased risk for cardiovascular disease. So we really have to take that into consideration from what are the benefits of including other sources, not only from a protein perspective, but also from a nutrient perspective. Then when it comes down to the question about low fiber diets, and the reason that I kind of categorize these together is because by nature, by the, the construct of the carnivore diet, it's a low fiber diet. A lot of them propose that you don't need fiber, but there, there's so many you know, benefits of fiber that we have to realize that those who abstain from eating fiber are going to be missing out on. So if you are following a low fiber diet, whether it be a carnivore diet, a um, ketogenic diet, it's, it's not going to, first of all, it's not going to support the growth of good bacteria as we know that fiber feeds the gut. And we have to realize that there are so many benefits that come along with fiber. I mean, from 
First of all, it's going to get converted into short-chain fatty acids. And these independently have their own benefits. So there's one uh, short-chain fatty acid, uh, butyrate, that has been shown to have immune-modulating properties. It improves insulin sensitivity and carbon fat metabolism. It helps with hunger management. Um, so there's a lot of benefits. And then when we look at the other benefits from fibers in general, so besides the short-chain fatty acid um, conversion, we see that fiber independently can lower cholesterol, it increases satiety and can aid in weight loss. It helps with normalizing bowel movements and improving digestion. It's going to help with blood glucose regulation and insulin secretion. So there are so many benefits that come along with including fiber within the diet that I don't see any type of paradigm, any type of well-balanced diet model that excludes fiber that would be not only beneficial, but that wouldn't be deleterious long-term. So I'm not saying that someone can't do a four-week trial. Like I have a friend, Dave McConey, who did a four-week um, experiment with, uh, not only he did a ketogenic experiment, but he did independently a carnivore experiment. But what he saw was his LDL levels were, I mean, through the roof. It wasn't that the fiber, the lack of fiber bothered him, but if we were to extrapolate that out over 12 months, he may be seeing some compounding effects from the elimination of fiber in the diet. So these are just some food for thought in terms of, you know, some of the drawbacks. And really, whenever we look at nutrition, we have to realize that it's often in the middle. So you have those in the carnivore diet, you know, uh, crowd that are usually, um, you know, opposing the vegan diet crowd. So plant-based versus only animal-based. And often it's in the middle. It's an omnivorous diet that includes high quality animal sources that are going to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, that are going to have a high leucine amount, are going to be complete amino acid profile. So they're going to fully stimulate muscle protein synthesis, really aid in muscle uh, growth and recovery. And then a, a large amount of plant foods. So your carbohydrates, your fruits, your vegetables, your fiber sources. So it's it's really meeting in the middle and realizing that going to any end of the spectrum is usually going to have long-term effects, especially from a nutrient perspective, because just like we see nutrient deficiencies within the carnivore diet, we see many nutrient deficiencies, especially from like a B vitamin perspective, from the vegan diet perspective. So it's like, we have to realize that any extremes are usually, you know, extreme diets lead to extreme downsides or detriments. So we really should think about it in the context to that it is super interesting because i do think people see like something like a carnivore diet or something like a vegan or plant-based diet as being like the holistic like more natural way of eating when again when you get to either end of those extremes like that's where you have to supplement the most in action in actuality to give your body the everything that it needs from a nutrient perspective so it's very interesting um to your point about like the carbohydrates um and sex hormone binding globulin and then that binding up more of your free testosterone from kind of a female perspective as well if we're taking on that low that low carb of a diet that would also potentially have a negative impact on just your overall menstrual cycle health wouldn't it potentially yeah i mean uh, we actually see independently that what you're referring to is, is from the REDS literature. So I think I've mentioned this to you uh, previously, but in the REDS literature, which is the relative energy deficiency in sport literature, now it's it's colloquially termed as REDS or relative energy deficiency syndrome, is that one of the effects of relative energy deficiency syndrome is the loss of menstruation or loss of a, a regular menstrual cycle. And one of the key indicators within that is not only low energy availability, so being at a disproportionate um, amount of uh, calories for how much you're burning, but also what's called low glucose availability. So being on a very low carbohydrate diet, what we see is that it it, it lowers LH pulsatility. And LH is one of the key mm -hmm. um, signals that are being produced by the hypothalamus to send down to the ovaries to produce sex hormones. 
So with that, it would, you know, interrupt or it could downregulate a menstrual cycle reg- or a menstrual cycle f- um, function even more. And then another thing, in addition to the lack of carbohydrates in the diet, and we see women being a little bit more predisposed to this than men, is a downregulation in thyroid production. So independently, low carbohydrate diets, including ketogenic diets, have been shown to lower thyroid output and thyroid production, especially T3. And that also has to do with the fact that the number one macronutrient that stimulates the synthesis and the production of leptin is carbohydrates. So when insulin is raised, it helps to increase leptin levels. So they've actually done independent studies on females where they've put them in either fasting trials or, you know, essentially uh, very energy restricted trials. And then they've refed them with carbohydrate refeeds. And what they've shown is with a high carbohydrate refeed, it's been able to help with LH pulsatility. So being able to reconnect that brain to ovarian access. So that HPG access or HPO access essentially. And so that's another, you know, downregulated effect of taking on a very low carbohydrate diet approach and something that we really should be, especially with females as they're more, you know, not to you know make this sound bad, but they're more sensitive to perturbations in energy availability, especially from a glucose mm-hmm. perspective. So we even have trials that look at within day energy availability. So if a woman fasts, they're they're more susceptible to the stress of fasting, not only because they see higher levels of cortisol and intermittent fasting trials with females, but also that within day energy availability. So what I mean by that is within the context of a day, it's not only about the calorie balance within 24 hours, but the calorie distribution. So say a female, you know, a male and a female, they're eating 2000 calories each hypothetically. And one, you know, one is, you know, compressing that into a six hour window as compared to another compressing that into a 12 hour window, a woman is going to be more sensitive to the perturbations, those, that lack of energy availability and the other 18 hours of the day than a male is. So we actually see more down regulation in, you know, female sex hormones from being in states of that. So we have to realize that all the inputs we make from a nutritional perspective are sending signals to the brain and being as women are, are honestly more integral for our survival, especially from a reproductive health perspective, we really should put ourselves in a, in a state where we're signaling to our body that we're safe, that we have more than enough energy on board, especially if you're an active female, you know, something like a ketogenic diet or something like uh, very long bouts of fasting are probably not a, a very um, beneficial approach, especially from a long-term perspective. Absolutely. Um, I think that was a great summary, man. I know you got a call here in like two minutes. So we better wrap it up here as always, dude. I appreciate you being here. Um, anything outside of the norm you would like to plug before I let you go. Yeah, just a reminder to everyone out there. We will be having the next, uh, physique education collective that is January 27th and 28th in Tampa, Florida. Uh, tickets have already been, uh, starting to sell. You guys can get the tickets on the excellencecartel.com. Uh, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me. I'll actually be presenting on the concepts or the topic of optimizing insulin sensitivity, both for improving body composition and metabolic health outcomes. So this will encompass everything from blood sugar regulation to, um, you know, uh, monitoring blood glucose with um, glucometers to ways to improve insulin sensitivity, reverse insulin resistance. I'll be going for covering the gambit and a ton of new research. I've been doing a lot of digging into this and maybe I'll even include some uh, chrononutrition in this since it does tie in. So, you know, we, we were able to cover some of this topic, but there are many methods to increase insulin sensitivity. And like I mentioned, 33 or 63 
uh, 3.1 to 66% of Americans today are pre-diabetic. So this is something that's becoming like a preponderance. There's a preponderance of evidence that's showing that this is something that's super common. So really should be looking out not only for our body composition, our body's going to, you know, what we look like, that's great, but our health is what's going to keep us in the game, in the gym, and really being able to respond to our training, nutrition, cardio, and all the other inputs and outputs that we want from it over the long term. Absolutely, man. And I think that's just going to be something that's becoming more and more talked about in the coaching space. And as a coach, probably going to become more and more important for you to understand how to help clients with. So I will link all that up in the show notes. And as always, dude, thank you for being here. Absolutely, my friend.